Job 38. Then the Lord answered Job out of the storm. He said, Who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me, if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. Then Job answered the Lord, I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer. Twice, but I will say no more. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. Would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? Do you have an arm like God's? And can your voice thunder like his? After the Lord had said these things to Job, he said to Eliphaz the Temanite, I am angry with you and your two friends, because you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So now take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and sacrifice a burnt offering for yourselves. My servant Job will pray for you and I will accept his prayer and not deal with you according to your folly. You have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuite and Zophar the Namathite did what the Lord told them and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. After Job had prayed for his friends, the Lord made him prosperous again and gave him twice as much as he had before. All his brothers and sisters and everyone who had known him before came and ate with him in his house. They comforted and consoled him over all the trouble the Lord had brought upon him and each gave him a piece of silver and a gold ring. The Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the first. He had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, a 1,000 yoke of oxen and a 1,000 donkeys. And he also had seven sons and three daughters. The first daughter he named Jemima, the second Keziah and the third Karenhapuk. Nowhere in all the land were there found women as beautiful as Job's daughters. And their father granted them an inheritance along with their brothers. After this, Job lived 140 years. He saw his children and their children to the fourth generation. And so he died, old and full of years. Thanks, Ian.
Well, good afternoon. It's good to be back with you again in this, our um, third and final of our talks through uh, this really amazing book that tells us a lot about Hebrew wisdom, uh, tells us a lot about God's wisdom and uh, tells us a lot about suffering, of course, as we've been looking at the last couple of weeks. I just wonder, if, thinking back, we've been talking about suffering, if you can think about some hard times that you've had when you're actually at a point of desperation and you've stopped and in your heart of hearts as you've prayed, you've actually said, God, I think you've messed up somehow. Uh, I'd actually, God, this doesn't make sense to me. Uh, God, let me tell you, if, if this and this and this were the case, it would be much better. Ever felt like that? My guess is, uh, I won't ask you to put your hand up, but my guess is, is, if we're all honest, there have been times when each one of us have felt that God has kind of messed it up a bit. Well, next time you feel like that, and my guess is sometime in the next week, month or year, you will feel like that again, this is what I want you to do. I want you to take a couple of days off uni, okay? Just, just don't come to uni. And I want you to hop in a car, if you've got a car, or a train will do, and I want you to head... West. Now, I'm not talking about Parramatta and I'm not talking about Penrith or even Katoomba. I want you to go really west. Uh, do you know where Dubbo is? Yes? That's not far enough. I want you to keep going and somewhere between Dubbo and Broken Hill, in the middle of nowhere, I want you to stop your car. Uh, if there's a full moon... Uh, take a couple more weeks off uni and wait there until there's no moon. And wait until a starless, uh, sorry, cloudless night. And then what I want you to do is to get a rug out of your car, you put that in the boot already, and I want you to put that down on the ground, and I want you to lie on it at about 2am on a cloudless, moonless night in western New South Wales. Now, I don't know if you've ever done that. It's a good exercise to do anyhow. And just look up and you can actually see in western New South Wales the curvature of the earth. The, the, the black of the sky looks a bit like a dome. It's like if you tipped it upside down and tipped it upside down again, all those snow things would come down that you get. And there's little like spotlights coming through and they're all stars. Now, apart from our sun, what is the star that's closest to earth? Alpha Centauri. Have we ever reached Alpha Centauri? No way. It is so far away. If you can work out which one is Alpha Centauri, I want to tell you that what you're looking at is light years away. And then I want you to think that that star is closer than every other star in the firmament. As you look at those stars up there, I actually want to tell you that probably some of those stars are no longer in existence because the light has taken so long to travel to your eye that it is literally light years away. And then I want you to think of a simple point of logic, simple logic. The creator must be greater than his creation. Now I want you to start to think about the majesty of God. Are you out there? Are we out there somewhere near Kobar, Wulkanya, staring at the firmament? And then resume your prayer. Now with some perspective, say, God, 
I want to tell you you got it wrong. God, I know you can create all these stars and stuff, but God, let me give you some advice on how to do this. Let's get some perspective. You know, I don't know how often I've been asked this question and I wish I could give you the answer. Here's the question. If God is an all-good God and if God is all-loving and if God is all-powerful, why is there suffering in the world? You know where the answer to that is to be found? Out near Broken Hill somewhere. Because as I lie on my back, I look up at the universe and I think of the amazing complexity of the universe and I think of how good it is in God's creation and I think, yeah, God must be all good. And I think about how the whole universe here, it just it cares for me. I mean, God must be loving. I mean, some people say, therefore I can't believe in God. Therefore there is no creator because of these problems of suffering. Well, if that's where you're at, please take a couple of days off uni. Don't waste your time at uni. Get that issue solved first. And go out to Cobar and lie on your back and come back and then tell me that it's all an accident. I wish I knew the answer to that. Job wish he knew the answer to that. But I've got the same problem that Job's got and I've got the same problem that you've got. And that is that I'm a creature and I'm not the creator. And I do not have all the answers. And that's what we're going to look at this afternoon Job has been crying out for vindication. Uh, We shouldn't be too tough on Job. I mean, as we get into the end of this book, he could have been praying, God, please restore my health, or God, please restore my kids, or God, at least give me compensation for the house that's been destroyed and all the animals I've lost. But he's not praying that. But he's kind of taken on the mentality that we looked at last week. If you remember the three friends last week, if you were here, of Eliphaz, Bildad and Zophar, these three guys who said bad things happen to bad people, we know from a couple of weeks ago that this is not happening to Job because he's bad, if you were here the first week, this is happening to Job because he's blameless. But he's saying, God, everybody thinks I'm a bad person, please vindicate me. Tell them I'm not bad. Tell them I'm a forgiven and blameless person. And so, God answers Job. And it's a really, really strange answer. Uh, I spend, I mean, I work in a theological college, I spend half my time doing the other side of what you do. You write the essays, we mark the essays. That's just how it goes. And you know what it's like. Sometimes you've been asked a question in an essay and I know what it's like in an examiner. I read what's in front of me and I think the question was not dump everything you know on this topic about this topic. The question was, answer the question. So normally what I write under that, and your examiners may do the same, you might have heaps of information there, but I write interesting but irrelevant. And then I put a letter in the alphabet somewhere between E and G at the bottom of the paper. (laughs) Here's God's answer. It sounds to me like it's interesting but irrelevant. Look at the answer. Listen to the answer. God says... Job says, vindicate me. God says this, look at the heavens. He says, go out to Broken Hill and have a look at the sky. Then he says, jump on the train and go over to Bondi and have a look at the ocean. What's this got to do with it, God? Well, it gets even weirder. 
Then in 40 verse 15, he says, look at Behemoth. And most of the Old Testament scholars that I've read think that Behemoth, believe it or not, is a hippopotamus. And then in chapter 41 verse 1, he says, look at Leviathan. And again, most scholars think it's probably a crocodile. Think about this. Here's your answer. Essay question. God, why is Job suffering? Vindicate him. Answer, look at the sky and look at the ocean. Oh, and by the way, the answer is the hippopotamus and the crocodile. Full stop. What's that got to do with Job's question? And the answer is everything. When you understand the hippopotamus and the crocodile, you'll have the answer to suffering. And that's what these final chapters are about. God finally speaks. And he speaks from the whirlwind, we read. And we haven't heard from God for a long time, really way back to the opening chapters. And when he speaks, he says, this is what you need to know. Here's the answer. It's related to the hippopotamus and the crocodile and I'll unpack it for you. Here is all you need to know. God says, I am God. Full stop. I am God. A plus answer. There's a story, I'm sure it's a hypothetical, uh, apocryphal story here where uh, uh, in a philosophy uh, question it was asked, what is a question? And the answer was, the answer, full stop, and that's all the person wrote and the person got a brilliant mark for philosophy. I'm sure it's apocryphal. But it's one of those sort of questions. Why, why is there suffering? The answer, I am God. Listen to what God says. 38 verse 2. We're all over the place this afternoon, I'm sure, if you've got your Bibles there. Who is this, God says, that darkens my, who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? He says, dress for action like a man and I will question you and you make it known to me. I love talking to non-Christians about the Christian faith and normally when we get involved in conversation, and you may be like this if you have non-Christian friends or if you don't identify yourself as a Christian at the moment, you may identify this. We start off and the non-Christian, we're sort of in an apologetic situation and they're saying, how can you believe in a God who sends a flood upon the earth? Can you really believe in an Adam and Eve? Can you? It, you know the questions, they go on and on and on. They challenge the Christian presuppositions. Let me show you, the easiest thing in the world is to challenge somebody else's presuppositions. So I have to give a defence for my faith, and so I do. But not very long into the conversation, I normally say, Woo, let's stop here. I'm happy to keep going here on one condition. One condition. That let's spend the next hour with you challenging me in my presuppositions. That's fine. But then I want you to present me with your worldview. And once you've presented me with your worldview, then you give me the same opportunity back. It is really easy to point out problems in somebody else's view. And God says, well, here's, here's Job. Job's questioning God and he says, well, who is this who darkens counsel with me? Dress like a man. Put your view. And then we'll actually start to talk. Verse 4, he says, where were you, Job, when I laid the foundations of the earth? I mean, I looked for you. I, I don't remember seeing you. And then he says, 
Tell me if you understand uh, who determined the measurements. Remember, Job, I was out there working out the perimeter of the world and working out with my tape measure how far Alpha Centauri would be. I don't remember you holding one end of the tape measure. I looked for you, Job, but where were you? He's in chapter 38, verses 8 and 9. It's a beautiful picture. I created the world and like a midwife wraps a beautiful white mantle around a newborn baby, so I wrapped the world in a mantle of clouds. Where were you, Job? Have you done that? And how about the lightning bolts, Job? Remember those lightning bolts that killed all your herds and your servants? Do they report to you, Job? Because they do report to me. I just don't remember you being dressed like a man. Who is this who darkens counsel with me? Remember, on the other side of Dubbo, how small that you are in comparison to the God whom you question. It's kind of like, you know, a middle-aged man has had heart problems and he's about to go into surgery for a triple bypass operation. So his family gathers around and just as he's going in, the surgeon comes out and the four-year-old granddaughter says to the surgeon, oh, tell me, doctor, what sort of an incision are you going to make? What's the surgeon going to say to the four-year-old? Is the surgeon really going to explain the kind of incision he's... I mean, there's an enormous, enormous knowledge gap Remember when you were in the back of the car driving with mum and dad and there was a big fight between you and your brother and sister and you were pummeling into each other in the back of the car and then the car kind of pulls over to the side. You can remember it, can't you? Mum and dad turn around. And what was the first thing you said? I'll say what you said. It's not fair. It's not fair. She did this. It's not fair. He did that. As if you had a heightened view of justice at the age of four than your parents did. Well, I want to say that the credibility gap between the four-year-old and the surgeon or the four-year-old and their parents is much less than the knowledge gap that is between the creature and the creator. Dress like a man. You know, the sad thing is, God asks all these things, did you know this, could you comprehend that? And the sad thing is that this year, I'm sure many of you are going through situations that are difficult. And some of you are going along just fine. But I'm sorry to tell you, it's true for all of us, that before the year is over in a room as full as this, that before the year is over, many of us will face some pretty tough things. Some of us will be given very bad prognosis from the doctor. Some of us have got a really special friendship at the moment and we really want to actually build that friendship to a point that we will go through the rest of our lives with that person. But you'll suffer heartbreak through breakup. Some of us will lose loved ones, they will die. Some of us will be betrayed and will feel really violated in all of that. That's going to happen. What do you need in that situation? I'll tell you what you don't need. You don't need someone to sit down and rationally explain the causes of your suffering. I'll tell you what you need. You need someone of strength to love you. You need God to come and all he needs to say is, I know you are in pain, but the answer is, I am God and I'm in control. That's what he does. He says, 
I am God. And let's not lose too much perspective here. It's not as though Job has cursed God. Actually, Job, through his actions, has actually vindicated God. Uh, the Satan, if you read through Job during the week, or if you read through it this coming week, you'll actually notice that we haven't heard from the Satan for chapters and chapters and chapters. He has been silenced by Job. But the problem is that Job is still working on the presupposition that bad things happen to bad people. He's still working on the presupposition of his friends and therefore he is crying out for vindication. And so the Lord speaks again, chapter 40, verse 1, and says, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? Are you going to tell me that I'm in the wrong Job, is what he says? He who argues with God, let him answer it. Chapter 40, verse 8. Will you even put me in the wrong, says God? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? You see, if bad things happen to bad people, try this logic, there's a few steps. If bad things happen to bad people, and yet we know that Job is not a bad person, but he's blameless. We saw that in the first talk. Therefore, bad things are happening to blameless people, then that's wrong if that presupposition is right. And therefore God is wrong for inflicting uh, suffering on Job because he's blameless. Did you follow that logic? And so he's actually saying, therefore God is at fault. You know, you, I'm sure in your heart of hearts, because it's still in my heart of hearts, even though I've given these talks, in my heart of hearts there's still something within me that thinks that bad things happen to bad people. I've got to fight against it. And the problem is this. I really don't recognise how bad I am. How are you feeling today? Feeling okay? I tell you what, I'm feeling okay. But I tell you what, if bad things happen to bad people, I can't explain why I've got good health. If bad things happen to bad people, I tell you what, I can't explain why I have friends. If bad things happen to bad people, I can't explain why I've got $2 in my pocket. I mean... If bad things happen to bad people, let me tell you, I'm, you, you don't know me. That's the problem. You just think this guy, you know, he works in a Bible college. He must be a pretty good guy. If you knew me, and if I knew you, it is astounding that we're not all sitting here scraping boils off ourselves on an ash heap. It's not that bad things happen to bad people, but relationships, all relationships and especially our relationship with God works on forgiveness and works on grace and God is God and he does not lose control. And so Job now answers God. And as I said last week, Job's answers to, answers to his friends go on and on and on and on and on. But this answer in chapter 40 verses 3 to 5 is so short and you know... When I've read through Job and I get to this point, I just say, at last he gets it. Uh, Listen to it, chapter 40, verses 3 to 5. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. And I just go, at last. Justify yourself to me, God. Why is there suffering in the world, God? And that's what Job's been going on about for chapters and chapters and chapters. I mean, as if he's fighting his fist up there somewhere west of Kobar, talking to the God who made the firmament. Tell me, God. I mean, 
think about who God is. He made the stars. Anyone here studying medicine, medical science, vet science? You're all art students, if that's what's happened here. We've just got a whole pile of... Okay, some vet science people. Let me tell you, if you... Do you know what I really like about my doctor? I, I, you, I got my, my GP. I don't just like about what he knows. I like that. I like the fact he's got a medical degree from, you know, the greatest university around. Uh, but what I really like about my doctor is this, that when he comes to an issue that he doesn't know, he knows he doesn't know. And he refers me on. If you're trained to be a doctor, the best thing for you to know is what you don't know. If you're training to do social work or some sort of counselling, the best thing for you to know is when you don't know. Uh, I'm, I'm involved in training ministers and I'm telling people, ministers hit a whole lot of messy stuff and we're always telling them, beware when you're out of your depths that you don't try and solve it, refer it on. The best thing that you can know if you're trained to be a lawyer is when you don't know the answer. That's wisdom. And you know what, if you're studying, studying medicine... You will go to the end of your life and you know how much you'll know about the human body? Next to nothing. The amazing thing I've watched with my kids coming to uni is that they've actually learnt at university that everything that I learnt at university was wrong. And you know what? When your children come to university, do you know what they will learn? That everything in my generation was right. No, maybe that everything in your generation was wrong as well. We actually need to learn how much we don't know And if you're studying vet science, let me tell you, the body of the hippopotamus is just as complex as the body of the human. Contemplate the hippopotamus. Go on. If you don't want to go to Dubbo, it's too far, hop on a ferry and go over to Taronga Park Zoo and go and look at Boema. That's what he says there. Have a look at the hippo and see if you can work him out. You will spend your whole life doing consecutive PhDs on the, on the hippopotamus and at the end of your days, do you know what you will know about the hippopotamus? Next to nothing. And if that's not complex enough, look at an unbelievably different animal of the crocodile. Look at the crocodile. If you want to look at the koala and the kangaroo, or look wherever you want and then start telling God that he's got it all wrong. If you don't want to do that, go and have a look at the ocean. Think about it. It is an enormous expanse. I picked up people last week who'd flown from America and they staggered off the plane thinking that is an enormous ocean. And I thought, well, you're in a jumbo jet. Try rowing across it. Think about the complexity of what God has created. And then start to tell him that you know better. And so we see that God says... I am God and you must trust me even in your darkest hours for I am the creator and nothing more needs to be said. And so Job repents in verses uh, 1 to 6 of chapter 42. Please note he's not repenting of a sin that led to his suffering. Surely we've established that by now. But he's actually repenting of his self-justification within suffering. He says this, look at 42, verses 1 to 6, Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that 
that hides counsel without knowledge. Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand. That's what he said. Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me to know, which I did not know. You know, I enrolled in Bible college in 1982 as a student, 30 years ago. And the reason I went to Bible college is because I had been to the Evangelical Union at the University of Sydney. Oh, and I'd done a degree on the side, on the way through. Uh, You know what that's like. And I'd come through and then I'd uh, I'd actually done a whole lot of correspondence courses. I was a teacher after uni. I used to sit up, I remember the first year we were married, you can talk to my wife about this, I used to sit up in bed for hours at night reading systematic theology. It's much more exciting than, uh, than reading novels. And I went to Bible college, I'll tell you, because you know, in 1982, I reckon I knew a fair bit about theology and I wanted to know more. I'm a bit of a slow learner because in the last 30 years, I've only had four years outside of Bible college. So I've been there for a long time. And let me tell you what I know 30 years later. What I've learned in the last 30 years of Bible college on both sides of the desk is that when it comes to understanding God, I know a lot less now than I knew in 1982. I've spent that time contemplating on God's word, contemplating on the magnificence of the one who created the stars and has put an immune system together inside the hippopotamus that is absolutely magnificent and has developed a crocodile with amazing jaws and an ocean so big and, and then there's the redemptive history of what has happened in Jesus and the resurrection and I just continue to contemplate that and you know what when I went there in 1982 I thought I knew a fair bit but now I can say with Job that I really know nothing I've uttered what I did not understand understand un- things too wonderful for me which I have not known And finally God says in the middle of suffering, now you know what you need to know, Job. And it's quite simple. Look at the crocodile, look at the hippopotamus. This is all you need to know. I am God. And my love for you is eternal, even in the hardest hour. And then God turns to Eliphaz. And this is amazing what happens in chapter 42, verse 7. And he turns to Eliphaz and he speaks to Eliphaz and the two friends, Bildad and Zophar, and he says this, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, that's Bildad and Zophar, for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. These guys have been offering platitudes. And let me tell you, when you're suffering, there is nothing worse than hearing the platitudes. You know, oh, someone's wife dies, it's all right, you're young, you'll marry again. What an awful thing to say to someone. I said to you in the first talk that uh, about 10 years ago I was diagnosed with cancer. I'm okay now, there's no problem. But I don't know how many people came up to me and said, look, I know somebody who had the same sort of cancer you have and they're okay. I never said it, but I wanted to say back, well, bully for you, I know five people who've had it and they're all dead in the cemetery. I mean, what good does that do me? It's all right, you'll get through it. Time will heal. Take your time. What empty platitudes. Emptiness. 
They've been uttering it again and again. And really, if you've read through the whole of Job, and if you haven't done it, read it this week, they are the most painful friends. No wonder they're called Job's counsellors. Bildad, Zophar and Eliphaz, boy oh boy, you don't want them among your five friends in life, I can tell you. (laughs) And so what does God say to them? This is amazing. He says, you've been doing the wrong thing, so he tells them to do an amazing thing. He says, you three, I want you to sacrifice for your sin. That's pretty normal in the Old Testament. And I want you to bring the sacrifice to Job, and then in verse 8, that Job will pray for you. Now, I want you to hear the magnitude of that. I want you to picture Job at the moment. At this point, Job's wealth has not been restored. Picture Job. At this point, he is still covered in boils. The skin is still peeling off. He's emaciated. He still has no family. He's no no kids. He still has no property. He's probably incredibly hungry. He is in the most horrendous situation and God says to him, pray for the people who are persecuting you. So he says, he says to Eliphaz and, and his friends, bring a sacrifice to Job that he would pray on your behalf. Do you know what it's like to be forgiven? I'm sure you do. I'm sure if you're like me, you've messed up lots in life and you've gone to people and you've said sorry. And sometimes when you've said sorry to people, some people are just so valuable that you can tell. It's not just words, but they really have forgiven you. How'd that make you feel? It's, it's, it's healing, isn't it? It's beautiful. It's an enormous feeling to be forgiven. But I wonder if there's still resentment in you for somebody else. That you might enjoy the joy of being forgiven. But do you know what it means to be able to forgive the person who is persecuting you? A book you've got to read. It's a really simple read. Uh, there's a lady called Kathy Diosi and she's written a book, it's out with Matthias Media. Um, it's called Forgiving Hitler. It's a great book. Uh, Kathy uh, Diosi now uh, is in her mid-80s, I guess, if she's still alive. I met her a couple of years ago. And she is a Hungarian Jew who lived through World War II. And if you read the book, it's a simple read, uh, her story reads a little bit like Job. It's a horrendous situation that she as a teenager lived through, uh, just running on her own, living on her wits, uh, family being killed, concentration camps, all the Holocaust sort of stuff. After the war, she comes to Australia, she lives in the eastern suburbs of Sydney, and she becomes a Christian. And it's a great read through this book, reading her life story, but when she gets to the end of the book, she says this, I realised that until I forgave Hitler, I would not be liberated myself from the resentment that resides within me. That's no small... I mean, the hurts that we have is nothing by comparison to what she's been through. And yet, if we can truly pray for those who persecute us, then we will know not only the liberation of being forgiven, but the liberation of forgiving And that's, I think, Job's final test. And then God pours blessing upon Job. It's lovely, the end of Job. Uh, His blessings are doubled. He gets, we see, lots more sheep. In fact, if you compare the number of sheep in the the last chapter with the first chapter, you'll see there's twice the amount. The same is true for the oxen. He gets another seven sons and three daughters, the most beautiful daughters there are around, we're told. And you say, well, how... How is 
ten children, uh, double of ten children. Uh, That doesn't sound like double to me. But of course Job believes in the resurrection, doesn't he? Listen to Job chapter 19 verse 25 where he says, I know that my Redeemer lives and at the last day he will stand upon the earth and after my skin has thus been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. And so in effect he gets twice the number of children for in the resurrection there will be 20. And we read that he lives for another 140 years which of course is two times three score and ten. What's the book of Job all about? It's all about responding to suffering with wisdom. Where is wisdom to be found? Well, one of the wisest men who ever lived told us the answer to that and his name was Solomon. He said, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Where does wisdom begin? It begins with recognising on your back, looking at the stars, in the zoo, looking at the crocodile, at the ocean, looking across to America. It is recognising that God is God. It is recognising, this is what wisdom is, recognising is not just what I do know, but wisdom is recognising what I do not know. Wisdom is recognising that even in suffering, God has not lost control. So the next time that one of us suffers and we say, I don't deserve it, please remember that if you call yourself a Christian, that you follow a man who suffered and didn't deserve it. And he has one command for you. It's there at the beginning of the Gospels as he calls his disciples. Here is his command for you. It is an unbelievably deep command. It goes like this. Follow me. He didn't suffer so you would not suffer in the short term. He suffered so that when you suffer in the short term that you would suffer like him recognising the purposes of God. You know, I'm not God. You ask me the question of suffering, I can give you lots of answers. I'm happy to give you lots of answers to suffering. And you can ask lots of people about what's happening in suffering. But you know what? They've all got one thing in problem. There's one limitation we've all got. We're all creatures. Look at the hippopotamus. Look at the stars. And then you'll find the answer. You know, I'm I'm not much of a sportsman. I enjoy watching sport. I enjoy playing some sports. I'm not much of a sportsman. I guess my favourite sport that I enjoy playing every Saturday morning, uh, which keeps me fit, is cryptic crosswords in the Sydney Morning Herald. Uh, That's a great sport. And and there's another sport that I enjoy. Cryptic people here? Good, you must. Um, But another sport that I really enjoy playing is... uh, It's pretty strenuous. I could probably play it with Boris, actually. It's chess. And uh, I remember with my kids, when my kids were growing up, you know, I could always run faster and jump higher and do, do stuff much better than my kids could do and that was fine until it came to a point where they could outdo me in all those things. But it was a really, really bad day when one of my children beat me at chess and I have never, I, anyway, I have to go back there. I love playing chess with amateurs. And if you want to play chess with me this afternoon, I'm ready. It's really good with an amateur. Uh, I'll tell you what you do with an amateur. This is how you do a chess. You actually, you set up the board and all that the amateur can see is just in front of their nose. And you get someone a little bit valuable, maybe a rook, 
maybe a bishop, and you put him over there and you just drop the bait over there. (laughs) And you know that if they move across and take it, that you're setting them up for checkmate. And so, you know, it's it's wonderful because all they can see, oh, that's a rook, I'll go and grab a rook, nothing's going to get me there. That's all that they can see. If you are playing chess, if you want to win, you've got to not only see all the pieces, but you've got to see the future as well, three moves in advance. I want to say to you, when it comes to chess, I might be able to see the future, two moves. But when it comes to the world in which we live, I do not know the end from the beginning. And I'm pretty much, I'm an amateur. And I only see what's in front of me. In the book of Job, we have had this amazing privilege to go to heaven and get a God's eye view for once. And I want to say to you, in the midst of your suffering, that will come as it must, that God is the master chess player. He sees all the pieces, including the pieces you don't see, and he doesn't just see three moves in advance, he actually sees the end from the beginning. And his answer to you in the face of suffering is, look at the hippopotamus, look at the stars, I am God, recognise what you do not know, but trust me even in your darkest hours, for my intentions for you are good. May God enable you to remember that. Hi, my name is Tim. Please join me as we pray in response. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. And when we look at your heavens, when we're out west of Dubbo, the works of your fingers, the moon, the stars that you have set in place, who are we that you are mindful of us? Yet, Lord, you do care for us and have a plan to save us from the beginning. We thank you for your son, Jesus, and that through him we can know you. Lord, you sent your son to suffer, uh, even though he was innocent. And so we pray that we would recognize that when we face suffering, uh, which we are bound to face if we follow Jesus. We pray now that you would give us great faith, that we would trust you uh, in the good times, but particularly in the bad times. We pray that we will rely on you for our daily bread and for our eternal salvation. Father, remind us uh, that you are the creator and give us the right response to you. Lord, we know that you can do all things uh, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. And so we repent of the times that we put ourselves above you. Uh, We pray that we could respond to any suffering we face with wisdom, that we would know uh, just how much we don't know. Father, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.